Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. I was thinking I could play some songs. That's okay. Minneapolis, 2018. Professional rock climber, two-time World Cup winner, Alex Johnson was begrudgingly at a Taylor Swift concert. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to be here at all. There's like a bunch of teenage girls and like moms. And I just like start putting them back. <laughs> so I don't want to be here. It feels so weird. But I like promised this friend and she did us a huge favor. And so I'm just like swaying in the crowd, like what nosebleed seats back and forth. And then I remember like watching Taylor Swift on the stage and somehow remembering she had this album that was called 1989. She was born in 1989 and so was I. And I was like, damn, we're the same age. We're both like about to be 30. After competing on the international bouldering circuit for the better part of a decade, she felt burned out and had taken a three-year break from competition climbing. She'd found an outdoor project to throw herself at, and her chosen challenge, the swarm, the V13, V14, in the buttermilks outside of Bishop, California, had been shutting her down. That summer, she'd been hanging with friends, coaching climbing, just kind of drifting. Oh, why do I feel so like washed up? And she's just like out here selling out stadiums. Huh, that's fucked. Maybe I shouldn't feel this way. Maybe being 30 means I'm like not done and I have like all this more to give. And then it was like really eye opening. And I texted a friend of mine and was like, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. This friend happens to be Christina Wilson, who won season 10 of Gordon Ramsay's Hell Kitchen. And she's like, super successful and like a total badass and I was like yo I'm thinking of doing this and she was like fuck yeah dude you totally should like never give up on your dreams and I was like cool okay (laughs) that's all I needed and so it was like Taylor Swift and Christina Wilson and I was like all right I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it I am gonna do it and then like just kept like swaying in the crowd I don't know that was the moment that's that's amazing. You just needed some strong, powerful women in your life, and you need to just get a little buzzed at, at a sweet uh, Taylor Swift concert, and just you know feel the inspiration flow. The this Johnson is referring to is competing, in particular, trying to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics. And I, it would have been cool if I qualified because that would have been like a cool story. And then I would have like tweeted at Taylor Swift and was like, dude, you made me, you made me go for it. And then we could be friends or something. But well, I'm, I'm sure she listens to the podcast. I mean, you know, surely she listens to climbing gold though. She'll, she'll hear. Yeah. You tag her. No, actually, no, we did. Uh, we, uh, we met her at the Oscars actually. We, uh, I met her at least once. You know, I think she was dating a dude that was nominated for one of the things that year. Which was interesting. My takeaway was actually that the dude she was dating was really pleasant and engaging, and and she seemed much less so. But I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but she she also probably is so burned out on that kind of stuff. So it's, it's you know you can't really judge. Yeah. Each generation builds on the next. Right now, the spotlight shines brightly on the newest generation of competition climbers. The best among them will carve out professional careers where corporate sponsorships from an array of brands, many having nothing to do with climbing will allow them to pursue the craft of rock climbing and the rush of competition. Today, we talk with Alex Johnson, or AJ, known amongst competitors. AJ has ridden the highs and lows of professional climbing for the last decade, and her career charts a fascinating shift in our culture and priorities. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzka Hall. This is Climbing Gold. 
I am Alex Johnson. I am a professional climber. I've been climbing for 25-ish years, I think, professionally for 12, 13. Um, grew up in the comp circuit and sort of like migrated to outdoor climbing when I moved out west. Like so many in her generation, Alex found climbing in the sweaty, dark gyms of the 1990s. Uh, I lived in Hudson, Wisconsin, so my home gym was in Minneapolis. It's still there. She climbed at Vertical Endeavors, which is also where Kyra Condi grew up climbing. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was ahead of its time, but it had like weird angles, like funky. It was just like really 90 degree, like aggressive roofs. And it was like scary to fall in kind of because everything was so blunt. And there's a railing. So there's like the lead pit starts in the basement and then there's like a railing and people just hit the railing all the time, (laughs) just even still. Naturally gifted and incredibly strong, Alex started competing and winning. First, it was regionals, the nationals, and the sport was kind of just waking up. Uh, It was a lot of driving. There weren't very many of us. Like, we didn't even fill a podium some years. But it was, like, so spread out. And so we were driving from, like, Minneapolis to Detroit, which was, like, 12 hours. Or, like, people would cut across the state and then take the ferry across, like, the lake, which was kind of adventurous. And it was just, like, Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, Detroit. Like, every weekend we were driving, like, five or six hours and going to bouldering comps not even bouldering comps we didn't have bouldering comps it was all top rope in 2002 at the age of 12 she won her first american bouldering series youth climbing national championship the next year at the age of 13 competing as an adult she won the adult national championship aj came of age during a unique lull in american competition climbing it wasn't that there hadn't been americans competing on the world stage before on the women's side lynn hill and robin ebersfield dominated the international climbing circuit in the late 80s and early 90s. Chris Sharma, Beth Rodden, Tommy Caldwell, Katie Brown ushered in a changing in the guard in the late 90s, but quickly left competition behind to pursue cutting-edge outside climbing. By the mid-2000s, Americans had mostly disappeared from the international competition circuit. Meanwhile, Europeans were taking plastic climbing very, very seriously. National climbing teams were supported by federal ministries of sport. Competitions were becoming serious business, with legitimate audiences, advertising, sponsors, and prize money. For AJ, who made quick work of the national stage, and her contemporary rival and friend, Alex Puccio, the global stage was the next logical progression. I think, like, especially World Cup climbing was so new to the U.S. then. Like, Chris won one way back when, and then I think Lisa won one in France like in the very early 2000s. And then since then, like people kind of forgot about there was a World Cup circuit. And in Europe, it was like going and there were people doing the whole circuit and like winning. And Puccio and I were sleeping on gym floors. AJ and Alex Puccio took the dirtbag ethos of American climbing competition style. Sometimes they crashed with the British team, laying towels down on the competitors' bathroom floors to sleep. And sometimes they crash on the floors of local gyms. It was kind of like, do what you can to show up and compete. To put it bluntly, the U.S. scene, the climbers, the brands, they just didn't care that much about gym competition climbing. There was no national team, no budget, no infrastructure, no appointed coaches or trainers, certainly no USA climbing tickets to compete in Europe. But in 2008, European competitors came to AJ. So tell me about the 2008 World Cup in Vail and and really set the scene. I mean, it's the first World Cup in American 20 years, you know, tell me some of the details from that competition. Like growing up in the Midwest in Minnesota at my gym, like I was big fish, small pond. And that was sort of the attitude that I like came to the world cup with and was like, I'm, 
I'm the best where I am. And I'm, I've won youth nationals, adult nationals. Pro, like I'm, I was like, in my mind, I was the best in the country. And so you show up like all arrogant to these world cups and you kind of climb that way too. Like you're like, well, if I can't do it, no one can. In 2008, like I showed up and it was like free the years before that, like Pucci and I going back and forth with nationals, like first and second, and then showed up this world cup and was like, well, it's going to be me or Pooch because we're the best in the world. <laughs> it's a super ignorant, like ignorant arrogance, but it helps so much. And so that's sort of how I climbed and just like had a bunch of fun, but also like had this mentality that was like, I'm the best and I'm going to do this boulder. And if I can't do it, no one else can. And I think it, it played in my favor in a huge way. And then I ended up winning and was like super stoked, but also like, well, yeah. <laughs> Johnson had pulled off what no American had done in years, outshining the deep European and Japanese competition on American soil. Her victory kickstarted interest. The following year, Puccio would stand atop the podium in Vail too. And then I ended up like, I thought it was going to be this big thing that would like change my life and like skyrocket my career and, and set off all these like, oh, interviews and, and a magazine cover and like new sponsorships and new endorsements. And I was just like 18 or something. And I was like, this is it. This is like the moment. This is going to be my pivotal moment. That's going to like, this makes me a pro. Now I'm a pro. And then like, I think I did like one little phone interview and was like, had one little paragraph in the back of Urban Climber magazine. Like, what? I want a World Cup. And it just turned out like no one really gave a shit. What, I mean, what, why do you think that was? I have no idea. I don't know. I wonder if it's because like maybe like up until that point and even beyond that and possibly even still, like the core of climbing is outside. AJ was running into a hard truth in American climbing, at least at the time. American audiences and therefore American climbing companies didn't really care if you won a comp. The majority of climbers saw plastic as a stopgap, a way of training or keeping fit during the winter. The needle at that time had swung towards the extreme adventurous side. And that kind of climbing was ready made for viral videos. We're talking soloing, base jumping, free basing, slacklining without a rope. That stuff was where it was at. Was it hard even to sell that to sponsors to be like, this is what I'm into? For sure. Like, were they just like, what the hell are you doing? Totally. Like, the thing that's cool is El Cap or, you know, 5 Yeah. Like, what were those conversations like? Um, A lot. Yeah, very accurate. Like, a lot of it was that. And it was sort of trying to be like, they didn't really care. It seemed like what was happening in Europe. So it was like the Vail, Vail World Cup was all they cared about. And then like outdoor climbing. And so it was like, I think what was frustrating for me was I felt like I was like doing this and in like, an unintentional, arrogant way, like pioneering it kind of like I was like by myself and then Pooch came the next year and we just were like over there competing on the circuit, doing it before anyone here really knew what it was. And, and it was like, I think we were frustrated that we weren't getting recognition for all the effort and like time and money it took to like do that. So now these kids can like do that, I guess. It was a hard sell. Yeah, because no, sure. nobody even knows how much time and effort it takes. Yeah. You know, I mean, even right. somebody like me as a professional climber doesn't even really appreciate, you know, the paying your own airfare, paying your own hotel, like dealing with all your own transit. And like, yeah. I mean, just the logistics. In some ways, each competition is like its own little tiny expedition where yeah. you're like, we're flying into some random village in Switzerland for four days. Oh, and then no, there was no the Uber, one. no yeah. like lift. And so yeah, it was like, how do I hail a cab in Moscow? No, it's just like, I'm going, here's where I'm going. And you're like, fuck, I hope I get there. Alex, is it your understanding that the, the climbers in Europe, um, the competitors there, were they going through the same struggles that the American climbers 
AJ and Puccio uh, were going through. Now, climbers in Europe definitely get a lot more institutional support for competition climbing or just for being, you know, elite competition climbers. I mean, uh, you hear a lot of the the best climbers in Europe have sort of specific like niche situations where, you know, somebody will be technically employed by the police or something or by the military or basically like state positions, but, um, but to focus on sport. Um, and you see that like with the mountain guides and stuff in Europe as well, where sometimes they're technically employed by their local city or municipality in some way, but it's just to enable them to, to climb full time. And that's something that just does not exist in the U.S. On the flip side, though, I think European climbers have a harder time making a living through sponsorship. It's a little bit harder to get money from brands in Europe, but it's much easier to get state support or, or you know, federation support through your country. And so I think that you know, it's hard to say on the whole where it's easier to be a professional climber. Cause I think a lot of Europeans look, you know, wistfully at the U S with the amount of money that you can get from brands in the U S. Um, but I think most Americans look wistfully at Europe when they see that, that, you know, a national federation will support their climbers. While it's tempting to look at AJ's career and think, Hey, this is the right athlete, but the wrong era. She doesn't see it that way. I think in like all my years of competing, I've been really fortunate to like one, the pool was a lot smaller, and two, I guess because the pool was a lot smaller, I could sort of fall back on talent, and I never really had to work really hard. And I think that changed like around 2012 when more start, more people started climbing, the pool got really bigger, and everyone started training. Like training for climbing sort of like really became in vogue. And so like all the previous years, like I was able to do World Cups, like make finals, make podium, and like wasn't really training. I would just go to the gym and climb a lot. And that changed. And I did that for like a year, like busted ass, like made finals. And I think I got hurt in that World Cup final. And then I took some time off. And I think was like probably pretty bitter because I was like, wow, I've already won that shit twice. And like, now you guys care about World Cups? Like, that sucks. After the break, find out what happens after the life-changing Taylor Swift concert. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-pitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. 
After recovering from injuries that hampered her 2012 season, AJ jumped back into the competition circuit with gusto. While she did really well on the national circuit, she had less luck at the international stage. As she said, other climbers had begun taking training very seriously, and with limited support on the home front, it was difficult to even show up. She began to focus more of her attention on outside climbing, taking off V12s like Clear Blue Skies, Book of Nightmares, and Lethal Design. By 2016, she decided to hang up her competition shoes. She tried going back to school, she bouldered outside more, bounced between Bishop and Las Vegas. And then, one day, the phone rang, and the gym owner of her gym in Minneapolis needed a coach for their competition program. AJ turned the job down, but the owner said it was an open offer. And eventually, she surprised herself by moving back home and taking the job. I think the two years I spent coaching in Minneapolis, I learned more about my own climbing than like my entire life. It's so crazy, like breaking down movement and and trying to like explain and teach movement comprehension to a group of kids who might have all completely different learning styles. Like some are audio, some are visual, some are like do it. And I think that was something that was important to me going back was wanting to like give these like talented kids a chance and something that I didn't have when I was younger and just like direction. Like I was like begging the dudes at my gym for like direct, please coach me, teach me, mentor me, like any kind of, and they did it and they were awesome, but it was just like a group of like 23 year old dudes, like with me, this 13 year old girl who's just like hanging out with their, like their shirts are off and they're like throwing chalk bags and like dropping F-bombs and playing like atmosphere, like rap. And they were so awesome to have me. And I think that was something that I wanted to like also instill in the kids that I coach, but in a way that was like consistent. AJ was surprised by how much she loved coaching, how much she learned from it, and how it helped reinvigorate her own love of climbing. And then an unexpected moment happened while she was coaching the kids on the team. So I was coaching my team in Minneapolis and there were like a couple out kids on my team and I was not like I was to like my my family and my friends and whoever knew me. And I think that's like how I was planning on going through life (laughs) was like, yeah, I mean, the people who know, know, and I'm not going to like hide it. It's not going to be a secret anymore, but I wasn't going to make like a public announcement or a professional announcement because I was like definitely worried about like how it would be seen or if I would like be accepted by like the climbing community or the climbing industry or like sponsors, like just going to, it is what it is. And I went to a private lesson one day and had um, one of my favorite team kids. And she just was like, not having a good day. And was just like, I'm not, I don't feel like climbing. And I was like, all right, well, we can just sit and talk if you want. Like, I mean, what's up? And she was like, oh, I'm just like, I hate school. Like I skipped again today and I got in trouble, whatever. Like I'm just like having a bad day. I hate school. And I was like, I hated school too. Like, why you, you seem smart? Like, why? What's up? Why do you hate school? And she was like, I just get bullied. And I was like, oh, really? Like, she was cool. She was like mature for her age, articulate, funny, like confident. She was like a great kid. And I was like, you get bullied at school? Like, what for? Like, why? <laughs> Who could pick on you? She's like little 13 year old. And she was like, um, are you homophobic? And I was like, what? No. And she was like, I get bullied for liking girls. And then I was like, fuck, I am doing a massive disservice to so many little 13 year olds 
who like have this ex- experience like she my like own team kid who I've been coaching for like months asked me if I was homophobic and like was like afraid to come out to me and I was like okay wow and then I like we like had like a really good I was like no I'm not homophobic like I have girlfriend she was like you do and I was like yeah (laughs) yep and she was like oh whoa cool and I was like oh yeah and then like left like went home and like posted an Instagram that day and was just like yeah I don't know I just felt like it wasn't for me at all. And I think that was like kind of the way it had to be because for me, like it was enough. And I was like worried about, I don't know, so much. Like there was like all my friends from high school and all my friends from college. And I've just been like lying to them for like our entire relationship, which is like so fucked. Like looking back, I'm just like, fuck, like, are they mad? Like I just was, I've been lying to everyone and like, cool. I hope they don't hate me. And then like never really came out to any of them individually or personally. Like it was just like, here's my Instagram post. Like they'll see it, whatever, fuck it. And then it was like, yeah, it was not for me. It was like all these other little like 13 year olds or any other like little kid or even adult who like, doesn't know that they have like someone not, not just like an ally or someone to talk to, but someone who like represents them, you know, like growing up for me, I didn't really have anyone to look up to or anyone that I was like, whoa, cool. Like, like I thought reminded me of me. I mean, better, better late than never. By 2019, AJ had been out of the competition circuit for three years. I think it's reasonable to say she had fallen out of love with it. But the Olympics and the qualification process, they were coming into view. Through coaching, she'd fallen in love with climbing again. And then that Taylor Swift concert happened. She was ready to go all in, at least one more time. She would have some serious ground to make up in terms of training, but there was time. More intimidating was the fact that the talent pool had only increased during her time away from the competition scene. And so what was the process like when you started to work that hard? It was sick. I got like the strongest I've ever been in my life. And my training was really different. Like I training has changed a lot in the few times I was away from competing and so had setting. And so I was coming in like, oh, parkour. Okay. And so I was doing like box jumps and squats and like all these plyometric things to like help balance. And they're like running across volumes and stuff, which was not like what I was doing when we were doing world cups. And so it was like a lot of practice on that. And then like pure strength stuff that was really specialized and precise, like specific to my weaknesses. And before I was just like ripping weighted pull-ups, which is like pretty pointless when you look at like climbing movement like when are we ever like and so it was like I stopped doing way to pull-ups and then started doing like individual single arm strength like finger stuff and got the strongest I've ever been. The first competition she felt ready to enter was in Slovenia so she booked her ticket packed her bags and headed to Europe. Like going to my first lead world cup in 2019 I'd like on-site at a 13th seat momentum and I was like dude I'm ready. It was so embarrassing because I went and I was like sitting in the chair and Yanya was sitting in the chair behind me and I was like fuck. I like tied in and was like oh you ready for this? You ready to see something cool? And I like got up and felt the second bowl. <laughs> I came down and she was like nice one and I was like oh, fuck you. <laughs> and she's like trick 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 and big flashes the root. And I was like dude that was like a v9 bowler problem like off the deck. I got so blasted. And I was like, okay, I think I know how to train for these now. Harder roots. Good Lord. Were you proud of it? Like, Absolutely you know. not. <laughs> 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 
but I'm like really good at deflecting with humor. And so I just like got off the wall and like turned around and was like, Yanya's gonna, this sucks. Cool, hey, Yanya, have fun on that. So I, I hope I gave you the right beta up to eight feet. I don't know. It was, I felt like such a gumby. Like I was like, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. And then I, I don't even know if there was a lead world cup. I got halfway up the wall. It's so hard. And what was most frustrating was there's like girls who do bouldering world cups and get like 50th place and then they make like lead world cup finals. And I just was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like I am stronger than you. That was frustrating. <laughs> I'm like, so what's your takeaway from that? Climbing is really hard. It got way harder. I learned a lot in the year, the qualifying year when I probably should have been learning all that like a year before. And and just to put that in perspective, at that point, you had one Bouldering World Cups. You'd climbed V13, V14-ish? Not yet. 12, oh, or, 12 or 13. Yeah, okay. So basically, you'd climb some of the hardest grades any woman in the world had climbed, and you'd won Bouldering World Cups, and you're getting thoroughly throttled on the competition circuit. Yeah. There were definitely things I would do different. Like, I think coming back to competing in 2019 was 2-8. I think a season before... I would have learned a lot, especially lead. Like I'd never done a lead World Cup. I didn't know how hard the, the roots were and they're like really fucking hard. <laughs> so I was like doing laps on like 12C at the gym and it was like, yeah, my endurance is getting good. And then you get on like a 14A qualifier route and I fall like the fourth bowl and be like, this sucks. <laughs> but I learned all that, like doing lead World Cups. And then by that point, like half the field had qualified and I was like, fuck, now I know how to train for this. Damn it. And I was like, yeah, a year too late, I think. <laughs> like when I grew up, yeah, doing like laps on a 12C, you'd be like, yeah, I'm pretty fit. Like I'm doing it. Totally. And then it's totally true that now you go into a gym and they're like 14B roots up and you're like, do people climb these? Like should yeah. I be climbing this? Alex, when you look at the competition circuit, it seems like there's, well, the level of difficulty has undeniably gone up and it's not just edged up, but it seems like it's been on a pretty great crazy growth curve in the last few years like it's gone up quickly i think people would better appreciate the the rise in standards for competition climbing if they ever saw the grades associated with the roots because in competition you just see somebody climb it you see them climb really well and you're like wow that that looked pretty hard but they did really well but if they saw the actual grade for the route you know i mean i've heard that that some of the qualifying routes um and, and semifinals routes are, are in the 14 plus range for men nowadays uh you know so like almost up to 9a or something in french grades it's just constantly, constantly getting harder. Right. They're being asked to on-site 14 plus. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, very, very hard. <laughs> Nowadays, competition climbers go into a commercial gym and there literally aren't roots hard enough for them to fall off of. You know, like, because most commercial gyms have a couple roots up to 13 plus, let's say, you know, maybe up to 8B max. And for elite competition climbers, you know, they can climb that route. They can down climb the route. And then just traverse over to the second hardest route, climb that too, and be like, okay, I tapped out the this commercial gym, you know, time to go train on on like a, uh, you know, some kind of bouldering board or, or like the campus board or something else, you know, use more like specific training apparatus. It's just so crazy to me to imagine going into a commercial gym and, and finding nothing challenging enough, <laughs> you know, because like I go into a commercial gym and I'm like, oh, this is really hard. I can't really do some of these. So question and I'm not throwing shade at you, I promise. I, I know you were out working on a 515 today. So how does one grow old as a, as a professional climber? Like, how do you age gracefully? How, how do you do that? I mean, and, and I realize that you're maybe not at that point, but certainly you've been around and seen other people do it. Like, how, how does a climber go about that? 
Generally, I think that climbing has an easier transition to being an old climber than many other sports, just because I think there are a lot of avenues for a professional climber to to stay relevant within the sport, but you know, not necessarily perform at the same elite level anymore. Um, more so than say professional football or something, where once you're not playing the game, there's not necessarily that much you can do. Um, but I think with climbing, because there's such a diversity of, of opportunity, you know, you can be doing first ascents, you can be leading expeditions, you can be working in the gym. But I think that the important counterpoint to that maybe is that that's less true for competition climbing. If you're known for winning competitions and you're not winning competitions anymore, then there isn't a huge pathway for you to stay in the sport. You know, I mean, you might be able to coach, you might be able to root set, but both of those are hard ways to make livings and, and they aren't really like long-term career options. But, but climbing is just so broad. I mean, you know, it's like so much of climbing is just going on adventures and sharing the stories. And so really that isn't age specific. You know, it's like you can still come up with good ideas and, and have cool trips and, and share them, you know, even when you're past your physical peak. At least I hope, you know. <laughs> so what I see, like what I hear you saying is that if you want to have a long climbing career, you need to be ready or, or at least willing to reinvent yourself. Well, well, really, I think um, if you want a long career in climbing, well, or almost everybody that has a long career in climbing starts from almost pure athleticism, like either competition climbing or just elite outdoor performance, and then slowly gets more and more adventurous, you know, learns how to trad climb, goes on expeditions, climbs big walls, maybe climbs big mountains. But I mean, that's a pretty standard trajectory, which makes sense with human physiology as well, that, you know, when you're in your teens and 20s, you climb the hardest grades. In your 30s, you climb slightly easier grades on big walls. You know, in your 40s and 50s, you climb big mountains around the world. You know, still at a high degree of difficulty, but but certainly not what you were doing 20 years before. You know, it's, I, I mean, a lot of professional climbers have, fo- have followed that that arc. Outdoor climbing versus competition climbing are like almost completely segregated at this point. Like they're so different. I mean, well, actually, I think it's an interesting perspective on competition because in the early 2000s, somebody like Chris Sharma could just be the strongest climber in the world, show up, win, be like, that's cool, and then leave again. Totally. It's like, that just does not fly anymore. Like, it, it translated more directly. Do you like competition climbing? <laughs> like, that's a, just like a... Right now, no. <laughs> I personally like competing because I think it engages like a mental aspect for me that I don't get outside as often, which is just like blackout. I'm just like, oh my God, I'm at the top. Like I experience that more in competition than I do outside. And I don't know if it's like the pressure or the atmosphere where it's like, I have four minutes to do this and there's like people yelling and it's just like, it sort of creates this like cloud or a bubble of like really pure focus. And I get it outside sometimes, but you're kind of forced into it in competitions. And that's like a really kind of rare, cool feeling. What don't you like about it? You seem like you're hedging Um, I don't know. I don't know what I don't like about it. I think like having to train as much as like you'd have to train now for it. I wouldn't like, like when I was doing it way back when I could split time between climbing outside and training for world cups. And like a lot of kids here, like don't climb outside at all. And they're just like only in the gym, only in the training center, like two a days. And like all, all their focus is on that. And I like definitely have my heart's outside for the most part. I don't think I dislike competing. I'm just like not in, not interested in it right now. <laughs> the oldest person at the World Cup last weekend was Kyra and she's like 24. 
Is she 24? For the U.S. team, I think. I thought she was a little older, but I don't know. I don't remember her being able to drink, like, kind of recently. Just an FYI, Kyra's 25 now. I don't know. I don't want to give it up. I didn't, like, pull out of the USADA drug pool testing yet. <laughs> so that's when it's, like, you're officially, when they stop coming to, like, take your pee. Because it's kind of hard to, like, get back into the... You can't just be like, I'm going to compete again and then like get back on the testing list. Like it's a kind of a process. And so I had like a long, I was like, I'm going to retire. And my like drug tester was like, just wait. You never know. And it's hard. Like that was interesting advice. What about the Olympics makes it so strong? Where you're like, that little voice is 2024. I don't know, probably just because of the Olympics and it's like insane at all the climbing's like was even considered to begin with, let alone in it. And there's just something so like, it's the Olympics, like it's majestic and it's this like, I don't know, it's weird. I feel like every little kid's like dream in life is to like go to the Olympics in some sport. After the break, we find out why stronger doesn't always mean better. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. In 2021, after 10 years of effort, Johnson sent her long-term project, The Swarm, V1314. Rarefied air. And yet, for all that Alex has given to the sport, the resurgence of American competitiveness on the world stage, helping make competition climbing in vogue again, being a role model for the next generation of strong climbers, the sport of climbing kept moving forward. To use her own words, the problems got harder, the field got bigger, and the competitors stronger. That's the nature of athletics and all competitive sports on a growth curve. Like how much of yourself do you recognize in these younger competitors right now? Not much. I would say not much. I think it's changed so much that it's almost, it's so different that it's almost like hard to relate. Just in terms of like, yeah, I like they all have funding. Like USA Climbing pays for them all to go do World Cups. 
And I was like talking to Angie about this the other day too. And she's just like, these kids have no idea. Like you've never slept on a gym floor with like a hoodie as a blanket to do a world cup the next day. And like one of us probably made the podium and they're just like getting full, like flights, food. They get like a food stipend and hotels. And it's just like, someone checks them in. They don't even check themselves into the hotel. They're just like chilling in the lobby playing whatever they're playing on their phones. Battlestar, I don't know what it's called. Nathaniel knows. He's like got a really high score or something. Yeah. What would you say? Like, like reflecting back on it now and seeing these 21 year olds where you're like, Hopefully they're not getting frustrated because it's just like Gabrielle Maroney did world cups for like 12 years and he didn't win his first gold until like his final eeps. Like it takes time and it's so hard to be consistent, especially in bouldering because it's so style dependent. And so like you'll see someone on the podium one weekend and not even make semifinals the next weekend. Like someone can win a gold and then get 30th. And it's that kind of inconsistency is something that I think was hard for me because I spent like from eight to 18 on the top of the podium. And so seeing that in World Cups, well, I wish I would have given myself more time to get used to that, like, fluctuation. Like, what you were saying about craft, like, sometimes it's not always stronger. Like, sometimes it's, like, get better, not stronger. And so there's, like, the root setters will form in the roots, and then I'll, like, talk to them about it. And they're like, I mean, I can't do a single one arm, and I did all the boulders. And so I think a lot of, like, the younger generation gets, like, trapped in this, I need to be stronger, I need to be stronger mentality and they're doing like weighted pull-ups and campusing and in reality it's like go to little cottonwood and climb like before slab you know like get better like i think that's how you get longevity in the sport is like your body can only take so much when you get older like physically it's the strength and you're gonna get weaker but if you're better that should like make up for that but do you think it actually does um i can't do a single one-arm pull-up but I was the highest ranked boulder in the 2019 World Cup circuit for the US. There's my humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Andrew Burton and me, Fitzka Hall. Additional editing and mixing by Matt Martin. John Bergman is our producer. Elizabeth Nicano is our senior producer. Music today by Brennan O'Connell and Cordelia Zars and me. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape and Beer, and Ben Endy and Jonathan Redzik for RXR Sports. Thanks for listening.